Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. 30 guys I got, I had to brought my little boy off at school. We got, we're kind of one of these deals where I'm the, I'm being Mr. Mom and we're going to run of the kid. So I was, I had to, I had to do that this morning. So I barely made it here. Just two seconds. No dramas. I, I punted our, our already is, I don't know how it happened, but the, uh, the calendar link pushed to like Google calendar, but it didn't push to my phone. So when I went to bed the night before, I'm like, Oh, I'm good in the morning. And then you know how it, I, I was looking through the Instagram feed and you had a picture of me and the snake diet guy. And I'm yeah. like, Oh shit! What's going on here? And they're like, "Oh fuck, I have this." <laughs> well, that's what I, that's what we thought. Yeah, I was kind of yeah. Cole was interesting. Yeah, he's, a, he's an interesting guy. We there's some similarities which we, we, we'll need to get into. But hey, Rob, I think I, I don't know that we need to do an intro. I think anybody that listens to us knows knows kind of who you are. You've been on the scene for a long. Time. Got my it's original like, Rob Wolf number. Right on, here. nice the original <laughs> pseudoscience. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, but what I do, I think most people, you know, you know, outside of the, you know, the kind of the crazy vegan world where they, where they think everybody that, that talks about meat are, are evil and crazy people, but I think most people in the in the in the nutrition space, whether it's low carb paleo, you know, most of them, even most many of the mainstream uh, nutrition people would consider you a, a voice of reason, and I certainly, you know, that's that's the impression I get. I mean, you, you're not one of these crazy guys like. There's a lot of crazy people out there. And some people think I'm crazy and stuff like that. But I mean, I think most people would say Rob Wolf's a pretty solid guy. And I, you know, I've met you in person. We've got to hang out. And, 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 and true to what your persona appears to be, you're the same guy in real life. And, and I think that's great. But I do find that it, because someone like you is actually saying, hey, carnivore diet's not totally crazy. I think that, that kind of a little validates it a little bit. Not that I think everybody needs to do that. And I've said that repeatedly. And I think you've kind of said, hey, it's, it's kind of a, uh, you know, it's an option for people and it's, we shouldn't dismiss it. Like you said, there's, there's a lot of value in looking at what people's results are, but I don't want to, I don't want to focus on that. I want to, there's two things that I think that, that we should get into Rob that I think are important um, that, that I think are well within your wheelhouse. And I think the first one is, you know, kind of what I have behind me. I know you, you and uh, Luis and, and Tyler have started uh, that, that the element company about electrolytes. And I think there's a lot of confusion around electrolytes and, and quite honestly, I think it's something we should we should we should spend some time in in, in how to how to do that correctly and what are the benefits and what you know it, it, just some of the science behind that because I think there's a there, there is a lot of confusion in the community and then beyond that I think it's very important the work that you and Diana Rogers are doing with trying to get this uh, film produced and, and you know and the book and uh, you know just talking about sustainable regenerative agriculture what is the way for because as you know we have a huge huge uh, well-funded push to make everybody turn into to to you know Planet vegetarians vegan. or yeah. or vegans and stuff like that. So I think we need to focus on those two topics. So let's dig into a little bit about electrolytes and just whatever you want to talk about. I'll, and, and Zach and I'll throw in questions when we have them. But let's let's get a little thought behind why why you started the company, 
and what what do we need to know about electrolytes? Yeah, so you know, I guess there's a at least to me a somewhat interesting backstory on that. Like I started stalking Tyler and Luis about three, almost four years ago, and. It, it, some people may not be aware, but I co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. I actually wrote the first email to the Glassman saying, hey, we'd like to open a gym and call it CrossFit. And, and uh, that ended up being CrossFit North with a, a retired Navy SEAL, Dave Warner, up in Seattle. And so I've been pretty early into a lot of these scenes. And what was impressive about CrossFit was both kind of the, the methodology they used seemed to make a lot of sense. They were big advocates of low-carb, ketogenic, paleo-type diets, you know, back in 2001. And uh, the, the training methodology really seemed to work, but they built a, a remarkable community around all that stuff. And when I started poking around what Tyler and Luis were up to, I, I really haven't seen community like what the early days of CrossFit, you know, kind of developed other than in that keto gains community that they had, like, I was just super impressed. And then I got to meet those guys. And, um, you know, they always say, don't meet your heroes, but like those guys were who they are online is who, who they are in real life. And they just, uh, really, really impressed me. And so I started doing some work with them. And even though in theory, I'm kind of an expert on this stuff, I'm a half decent biochemist and I know the metabolic pathways and all that, but these guys are just like in the trenches coaching people, which I think is so incredibly valuable, but yet overlooked for, for so many people like the, the science and the mechanisms are really interesting, but at the end of the day, what, what coaches are able to get, you you know, on the kind of performance side, I, I think is really fascinating and, uh, uh, Charles Polican mentioned that usually coaches were about 20 years ahead of where the, the, the bench scientists typically are in, in what's going on. And so I started hitting them up for, Hey, so I'm doing jujitsu. Um, I don't seem to have much of a low gear. I've got to throw some carbs in around the training, but, uh, uh, I feel cognitively best while on some sort of a low carb keto type diet, but my, my performance isn't that great. And so they, dug around and looked at what I was doing. And they said, man, um, I don't think you're getting enough electrolytes, specifically sodium. And I was like, no, no, no. I salt my food. I'm good. I'm good. And so I did what most people do um, when they have a coach, which is they ignore them straight out of the gate and uh, motored along for the better part of a year, struggling, suffering. And those guys were just patient with me because I'm an idiot and they're not. And then finally, one day they were like, no, man, really, like, take our, like, electrolyte, you know, keto aid formula that they had put together, which tells you how to mix all the stuff together, sodium, magnesium, potassium specifically, and they did it, and it was like magic, like, just a switch was flipped, literally, and then, uh, uh, you know, my, my, even though I have a pretty lazy, non-athletic jujitsu game, and I do that on purpose so that I don't need to rejigger my game as I get older, I'm just trying to be very efficient, but I can roll really hard if I want to, I can roll for two hours straight if I want to. And it, it's all just kind of dependent on making sure that the electrolytes are on point. So that was my personal experience with this. And then in developing the keto masterclass and having, I think, like 40,000 people go through that thing at, at this point, every single problem that seemed to pop up, maybe not every single one, but the vast majority of them, uh, lethargy, fatigue, some of these like adrenal, you know, HPTA axis dysregulation, thyroid type stuff. 
inevitably it ended up being an electrolyte issue and more specifically sodium. And it was just kind of magic where I would see Tyler and Luis in particular work with these folks. They're like, well, we need to, they, they paid as much attention to the electrolytes as they did to the macronutrients that they were prescribing. And it was just fascinating to see somebody going from stalled, lethargic, kind of, you know, feeling terrible to feeling wonderful once they got their electrolytes on point. So we, we were looking at this and this is two and a half years ago now. We we're like, hey, should we do an electrolyte supplement? Because there was nothing out there that addressed this stuff. And I just kept saying, I'm like, but it's just fucking salt. Like, are we really going to, to, to do this? You know, I mean, it's a lot of money and a lot of effort and all that to do it. And so we sat on this thing for like a year and we posted the formula for how we were, you know, the, the keto aid thing. And we were just waiting, hoping somebody would come out with a, a, a good formula that had adequate sodium that didn't have sugar and all this stuff. And everybody, all the players in the scene kind of came out with different things and none of them remotely got it right. And so uh, over about a year and a half ago, we said, okay, I guess we're going to do it. So we got in and did all the branding and development, got the, the formulation dialed in. And the way that we built the formula was aggregating about, I don't know, 200, 300 people's uh, dietary inputs that they had put into MyFitnessPal kind of looking at the distribution of what they were getting with regards to sodium, potassium, magnesium, and calcium. And because the Keto Gains folks are recommending largely whole unprocessed foods, people were fine on calcium. They were pretty good on magnesium. They were a bit deficient in potassium, and they were super, super deficient in sodium. So the way that we formulated Element was to fill the gap of an otherwise well-formulated whole food-based diet. And we launched that thing back in January and we, we had high hopes for it, but we ended up selling out. Like we, we got, we got in over our head and we sold out for nearly a month because the, the demand and the success and the, the community buy-in has been nothing short of remarkable. So I, I think we really, um, we identified a serious pain point and the thing tastes good and it works well. And, and it works so immediately. Like if you're, cramping or feeling bad or what have you, and you do a dose of, of any electrolyte, like our, our salt is not magic. It's not collected from the tears of Tibetan monks and blessed by the Dalai Lama. It's, it's just salt, but it tastes good. It's well-formulated. It, it's balanced in the ways that would complement a, a well-formulated diet and people feel better almost immediately with it. So we have a really cool uh, tight feedback loop. So, it, you know, it's not a subtle thing where you're like, I don't know, maybe I feel better. People are kind of like, wow, okay, yeah, I feel dramatically better. My performance is better. And so it's it's been quite successful so far. Hey, Rob. Hey, Rob. Oh, go ahead, Zach. I was just going to ask um, to follow up with, uh, you, you know, because I see this too with folks I'm working with is, you know, they'll start a keto diet or they'll have a, a few months or even a year or more under their belts and then they'll get into kind of a heavier training regimen and they'll feel like they're kind of flat or they don't have that last gear. And usually I'll, I'll recommend taking a look at their electrolytes first, just to eliminate that as a potential cause before I start messing around with their macronutrients too much. Uh, so do you like have a protocol in that situation when someone is feeling like lethargic or getting cramps? Do you say like, just, you know, take the supplement until it goes away? Or is there, is it really detailed as to how much is there like a a top end that they try not to pass or they have negative consequences for that as well? 
Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, so it, it, it's interesting because the recommendation to supplement sodium is pretty controversial, similar to eating animal products and saturated fat and all that type of stuff. Sodium was one of these things that kind of got thrown under the bus in the whole um, metabolic syndrome story because folks who are hypertensive, they're retaining excess sodium. And so the thought was if we reduce sodium in the diet, that will reduce uh, hypertension, um, but that has never really worked. Like there have been studies on the DASH diet and low sodium diets, and it really doesn't work because it's tackling things from kind of the wrong end. And so there's kind of that piece that I just wanted to put into context. Like it's a really controversial notion that you would, in general, that one would supplement with sodium, but it's interesting, even if you go to the uh, American Council of Sports Medicine guidelines on electrolyte and sodium supplementation, an individual that's exercising at high intensity and or in heat and or in humidity, the ACSM guidelines are seven to 10 grams of sodium per day for these individuals. So it's interesting. We, we have that as kind of an interesting benchmark. There was also a study, which I can, I can forward the, the details to that to you guys, that looked at uh, sodium intake in heart patients. And what was interesting, these were diabetic heart patients, but what was interesting is that at two grams or lower, there was a, it's a U-curve, but at the low end, it's a very steep increase in morbidity, mortality. There was a low ebb at around five grams per day of the lowest morbidity and mortality. And then you had to get out to nearly 10 grams of sodium intake per day in these sick diabetic heart patients before you had as much morbidity and mortality as at two grams a day. So we've kind of used those, those things as a little bit of benchmarks. The, the five grams of sodium intake per day is pretty standard recommendation within ketogenic diet literature. Finney, Volick, if you go to a, a dietitian that's savvy with ketogenic diets, that five grams of sodium a day is kind of the, I, I believe, the bare minimum that people need if they're in this kind of lower carb space. But then a larger individual, a more active individual, someone that's in a, a hot or humid environment, then those demands are going to increase. And it'd be great if you guys got Tyler and Luis on here at some point. But I know that those guys are both doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu now. Luis lives in Mexico City. The place he goes to does not have air conditioning. And he will sometimes do uh, 10 to 15 grams of sodium per day if he's doing both weights and uh, the jujitsu, which is a remarkable amount. I mean, it, it, it's really a remarkable amount uh, relative to what we're generally told to, to consume. Yeah, you know, that it makes sense to me because I remember when I kind of first got into to keto and, you know, I usually try to do a lot of it intuitively, like, I'll do phases where I'll track things because usually what will happen is I'll get enough questions about a specific thing where I kind of have to in order to give an accurate answer. And at, at a certain point that kind of came up with like, well, how much salt are you eating? How many, how much electrolytes do you take in? And, and I tracked mine and it was like somewhere between 10 to 12 grams. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that was in the context of quite a bit of exercise and goes at like probably around 15 hours a week or something like that of running. So, um, those numbers are like, it's just funny how they kind of match up with what I, I wasn't trying to hit 10 to 12 for any specific reason. That's just kind of what it ended up being. And I was even a little surprised I was at, I was that high and, right. uh, but it is interesting to hear that. How are you taking in the bulk of your sodium? Uh, 
I'll do it a little differently depending on the time of year. Uh, I'll do a lot of like bone broths and okay. put some salt in there and I'll get quite a bit from that. Uh, I'll do a lot of just like sea salt and stuff on my foods. And then I'll take an electrolyte supplement too, when I'm out there running, especially during the summertime. And especially since moving to Phoenix too, where you know, we get all the heat here. So, right. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, so I actually, I should probably actually go check again. Cause it could be when I first did that, it was actually during the winter in the Midwest where I was hitting around 10 grams. Oh, so it'd be interesting okay. to see what I hit in July in, in Phoenix. <laughs> right. Right. Well, we're getting ready to move to uh, the hill country of Texas where the, the humidity isn't, isn't like as, as bad as like Houston, but it, it, in Reno in the summer, it will be 95 degrees, like 5% humidity. It's going to be 95 degrees there and like 80% humidity. So I have a feeling my, my sodium intake is going to go up when I hit that scene. Yeah. yeah. I can tell you, Rob, I grew up in Texas and uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time in Houston. Houston sucks in the summer. I, I, I'll just tell you that. My mom's yeah. sister there, but I don't want to go in the summertime. But yeah, in the hill country, Austin, that's a beautiful place. We talked about that before. But hey, we had, you know, we had James Don Nicolantonio on, uh, you know, a while back. You know, he's the author of The Salt Fix. You know, mm-hmm. he's pro-sodium. He's pro-salt. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the misconceptions around sodium consumption is, is usually the processed packaged foods are heavily, heavily, uh, you know, salted. And, and therefore, we kind of conflate the problem with salt and it's really processed foods. But I want to... Um, you know, when we talk about performance, because one of the things that, that James had discussed with me was the concept of, so, of, of sodium loading or salt loading prior to performance. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the, the supposed benefit is it just increases, uh, it, it, it causes an increase in, you know, intravascular and then, and then extracellular water, your muscles fill up with fluid, and then you perform better. Uh, is that some of the benefit you feel that that's going on? And, and I don't want, and I know you've talked about glucose and some of the other things. Let's talk a little bit about the physiology of why, other than, you know, it makes me feel good because, and I think that's the end of, at the end of the day, that's really all we need. But some people like to, to nerd out and talk about, you know, what's going on physiologically. And so hopefully you're a little frozen on the screen. So hopefully you heard me and, and you're coming back. Did we lose Rob? Uh, I think it might've. You guys are back. Yeah. Did you, did you hear my question, Rob? I, I, the, it cut off right at salt loading. Okay. So I was saying that, uh, what was I saying? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the fact that salt loading, you know, potentially increases intravascular and, you know, water in, in, in water in the muscles and that, that allows you to perform better. Um, uh, you know, and then I know you've spoken about maybe the, the effect of, uh, uh, electrolytes on glucose metabolism. So, for, for many people, like at the end of the day, and I'm, I'm a big proponent of this, is, you know, how are you performing? What's going on? How do you feel? That's, that's really all you need to know. But some people like to get into the kind of nerd out about the, uh, the physiology. So can you touch on that a little bit for some people that might have some interest on the fact of, you know, do, does, incre- does, it, does, it, does it cause in, increases in fluid and does that benefit us? And, and also maybe glucose and anything else that, that you that you're aware of that this may be beneficial to physiologically. Yeah, yeah, you know, like the the I I think the physiological term is naturesis of fasting, like that's the process of just shedding sodium, and it, it's really interesting because it becomes a nasty downward spiral. You shed sodium, you shed water because the sodium potassium balance is is out of whack. Then you start shedding potassium. And it, it really spirals out of control rather quickly. And this is maybe something that's worth mentioning. Um, prior to the, the age, there was a time, and it was when I was still alive, when you went to 
football practices, your football coaches, when it was 110 degrees, they told you to take a, a salt pill and then you would drink some water with it and things were fine. But people were not dying from hyperhydration, like consistently each year, new recruits in the military, marathoners, triathletes, um, people overhydrate and get their electrolyte uh, uh, ratios out of balance in the concentrations uh, to a point where they suffer cardiac arrhythmias and, and, and death oftentimes. So the, the, the too low of electrolytes or diluting the electrolytes appears to be far more dangerous than, than getting too much. It, it, it's hard to, it, it's harder to, to get too much, but uh, one of the really nasty features of that nature resistive fasting is that, that uh, what can be nasty on the one hand and great on the other. If you are uh, insulin resistant type two diabetic, who's retaining a bunch of water that initial stage of fluid loss normalizes blood pressure, and that can be a great thing. If you have hit a more normalized physiology and you have a hypovolemic state, you don't have enough blood volume, then you go to try to go from seated to standing and you pass out and fall over to say nothing of trying to do any type of you know, legitimate athletic activity. So definitely the addition of the sodium is going to cause fluid retention, it's going to halt that really nasty loss of, of potassium and magnesium. So it, it definitely helps on performance. And it, it, it's interesting, that's a, a little bit like just kind of a dusting of the physiology on that. But uh, Luis, when, when people would enter the keto gains group, and folks would say, well, you can't get a pump while you're, you're low carb, he's like, no, you can, you just have to get your electrolytes on point. And this was one of these really interesting things that were kind of mind, you know, a little bit mind blowing for people, but when they got their electrolytes on point, then they could get that, that kind of pump that you would get from normal bodybuilding protocols that most people would say you couldn't get from a lower carb approach. So I think it's beneficial on, in that regard, I have noticed some literature suggesting that, uh, nitric oxide uh, uh, synthase activity is dysregulated in a low sodium environment. So you tend to get less kind of vascular opening in a, a kind of a, a low sodium environment. And it, I've only been digging around on this for a couple of days, but it's pretty interesting. And so you have two potential mechanisms there, just the, the fluid volume increase, which could be beneficial for performance on a lot of different levels, but then also the, uh, uh, you know, improved vascular function because of uh, uh, nitric oxide. Yeah, I mean, I, and I've certainly seen, uh, you know, you know, quote unquote, better pumps in the gym when I, when I, when I, you know, I've topped off my, uh, my electrolytes prior to going in there. And I usually, I mean, timing wise for me, it tends to be about 20 minutes before, you know, I just, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you know I, I hit, get some salt, get some water in me. And then I feel, you know, that, you know, that there's a difference, you know, so, you know, not that it's a thousand percent difference, but there's, there's, there's a decent difference that, that, that's noticeable. So I think that's important. Talk to me a little bit about glucose uh, metabolism, because I know you've mentioned that uh, sodium is uh, important in, in that, uh, you know, I mean, we know, I mean, there's a lot of things, you know, we know if we give a, if we give uh, someone insulin, their potassium level, you know, we, that's how you can regulate hyperkalemia, I mean, or hyperkalemia, as, you know, with, with insulin. And so that we know that, there's, there's intimate relationships between our electrolytes and, and, and our insulin glucose metabolism. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits? Because I know you'd mentioned me when I came on your show, what is it, about a year and a half? God, it's been a while. 
a year ago or something like that. And I, we went over my labs and we were like, oh my God, your glucose is high. You're going to die. And you said, well, why don't you look at your sodium? And so uh, talk a little bit about, about your, your, uh, um, your knowledge around sodium and glucose. Yeah, I mean, uh, Denicola Antenio's uh, knowledge on this is way better than mine, but it, it does appear that, again, uh, dysregulated or low sodium environments could cause, uh, uh, you know, some downregulation in the glucose transporters, both the insulin and non-insulin mediated transporters. And so it, it's interesting that just folks who have had even if they're kind of on the low carb side, but they're still kind of having like a little bit of that foggy headedness. They're not, you know, the, all the cylinders don't seem to be firing quite right. Then getting the electrolytes on point, they seem to get better cognitive function. The, and again, this is all pretty empirical stuff, but you know, on the mechanistic side, we do understand that a low sodium environment is probably going to impair uh, uh, glucose signaling, you know, proper glucose disposal and utilization and whatnot. And then I, I guess on a little bit of the empirical side, if we see like some challenges with cognitive function that are resolved with uh, sodium supplementation, then we, we kind of see the, the proposed mechanism kind of supporting that, that coaching based outcome for sure. Hey Rob, I want to. I'm just going to shift gears a little bit because you know, and I, and I hung out with you know Luis and you guys, and we chatted. And you know, I mean, you know, Luis, you know, their their sort of name is Keto Gains, and obviously they're 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 using low carb approaches. But Luis and I think you two probably also subscribe to a little bit higher protein, or you don't demonize protein like like it has traditionally been in the in the sort of you know ketogenic sort of. Feel and and I think there's a lot of line, alignment with what I do with with a meat based diet because obviously it's it's still mostly fat but it's still it's much higher than, higher in protein and we have you know guys like Ron Rosedale and and you know I mean you know we've got uh, Walter Longo and uh, Joel Furman and all these guys uh, are out there saying that we need to just kind of keep protein at the bare minimum and uh, and then uh, then we've got guys like Don Lehman and you know Stu Phillips and Jose Antonio and myself and so talk to me about protein, mTOR, uh, you know, what, what, are we going to die if we eat protein? I mean, what's the deal on that? We, we will die eventually, but um, it's going to be a long time down the road. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's funny, um, you really have to look at, uh, there's a particular stripe or a particular flavor of the ketogenic diet scene that is more fearful of protein than the raw vegan scene. Like I, I just did a little back of the envelope math. And if you do the 30 bananas a day diet, uh, you get about 40 grams of protein. Now it's incomplete protein. There's not enough leucine, blah, blah, blah. But you get about 40 grams of protein. There are folks in the keto space that are recommending 30 grams of protein for a 170 pound male like myself who's physically active. And, and we see a lot of problems with that. And, uh, you know, from a, a kind of a theoretical underpinning, if we look at the protein leverage hypothesis, it suggests that most organisms eat to a protein minimum. Uh, if we're talking about ruminants, they tend to gravitate towards more protein-rich forage because it tends to also be more nutrient-dense. And we just, across nature, protein tends to be synonymous with nutrient density. So the body doesn't need to, to sample or regulate for very many things to hit it's nutrient needs so long as it, it's just aware of where the protein intake is. 
And if we stick someone on a low protein diet, whether they are low fat or low carb, they will tend to overeat because their body is seeking that additional nutrition. They are effectively malnourished. The body knows that they, they're malnourished. So they're trying to, to uh, stop, you know, fill that, that gap by, it, it, you know, basically not having their, their appetite properly regulated. So they're going to seek out more food. So what we've noticed is the, the folks that are recommending, you know, uh, uh, protein levels that are, are still allow an individual to be within ketosis, but we're not chasing ketones for the sake of ketones. And there certainly will be scenarios that that's appropriate. Somebody who's in overt neurodegenerative disease, somebody who is using uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy for adjunctive cancer treatment, we want some very high ketone levels in those folks. So we'll use some low protein and some fasting protocols and stuff like that to support that. But those are really specific interventions. Whereas if, if we just want people to reverse metabolic derangement, lose weight, to get healthy, to have good performance, they have to eat at that, that higher end of the, the protein, you know, kind of intake level. And it, it, it's interesting, it seems to be far more forgiving to overeat protein than any of the other macronutrients. And we also tend to see much more, much greater problems if, they're, if folks are under eating protein than overeating. Like overeating protein is very, very difficult to do from a physiological standpoint, from a, a, you know, a neuroregulation of appetite standpoint. The, the whole story around like mTOR and, and whatnot is just frustrating because folks have, folks have taken something that is purely theoretical right now uh, in, in, in some really specific context. So people like uh, Walter Longo are looking at rodents, which have a very different uh, uh, genetic reaction norm profile than humans. And if you remind me, I'll, I'll unpack what what that is, but they, they basically, they respond to nutrient inputs very, very differently than what humans do. They overfeed these animals and they chronically overfeed these animals. These animals are waking up in the middle of their sleep cycle to eat and they're getting overexpression of mTOR, IGF-1 and a bunch of other kind of, kind of growth promoters. And not surprisingly, we see all kinds of deleterious health effects, including uh, shortened life and cancer and all ki kinds of other things. But what we're not considering is that humans, one, are not rodents, uh, it, under an idealized kind of carnivore, keto, paleo type scenario, people are eating somewhere between one, maybe three meals a day and not snacking. And it, it kind of runs the gamut. Some people eat one, some people eat three. I vary somewhere between one and uh, between two and three, depending on a given day. But what you have in that scenario is pulsatile activation of mTOR. Uh, uh, with uh, periods of downregulation in between the feeding. It's interesting also that ketones as a signaling molecule, they seem to modify the way that mTOR is activated. And uh, another piece to this, that it, well, there's a couple of different pieces. So if we do want proper uh, kind of immune response with regards to, to cancer, we need activation of mTOR complex one at some time point to be able to turn on the, the, uh, the immune cells, which are responsible for identifying cancer cells. So if we completely suppress mTOR, we do on the front end tend to suppress cancer propagation, but we also suppress all of the immune activity that goes into normal cancer clearance. So 
you could make an argument that probably the way the system is designed, best designed, is a little bit of a randomized or stochastic process of upregulation and downregulation. And, and it's definitely worth mentioning that resistance training, sprint efforts, and, and things like that upregulate mTOR specifically in the muscles. But yet we don't see any type of like a, you know, like myocarsoma increase. We see the exact opposite. Like strength training seems to be magic for reducing a, a all, all host of uh, all-cause mortality issues. And I guess one final thing, and I'll, I'll forward this paper to you guys, that there was a, and this is the one that kind of unpacks that genetic reaction norm story, but it makes the case that because humans are, are not all species, respond favorably to caloric restriction and not all species see an increase in lifespan due to caloric restriction. And what this paper suggested in some people like um, Michael Rose and some other uh, researchers that really have this evolutionary biology kind of hat that they wear when they look at this stuff, the paper suggests that if as a child you were caloric restricted, hypogonadic, low body temperature, no sex drive your whole life, you might get six to, t uh, six to seven years of additional lifespan added. But we know for a fact that if you just lift weights, that's about three years of additional lifespan. Like really quickly, if, uh, you know, if you sleep properly, that's about three to four years of lifespan. And these things are likely not additive, like we're not going to sleep well, lift weights, and you know, stick 20 years of, of added lifespan potentially isn't probably the story. But what's interesting is doing interventions that we know for a fact work and improve our quality of life both today and ostensibly tomorrow, we can really hang our hat on that. Whereas this other stuff is basically saying, I'm going to give forego quality of life today in the hopes that I have more life later, which we also know is going to be lower quality. <laughs> so it's a really perplexing topic for me. And I, I get where you know, people are wanting to maybe strike a balance and all this stuff, but you know, uh, uh, I'm definitely in that camp of lift weights, eat protein at, at a level that really supports um, body composition and performance, and then fight like the devil to to hang on to that as long as you possibly can. Yeah, I'm squarely in that same camp, Rob. Um, we've got a guy, uh, Dr. Keith Barr, that's uh, we're trying to. That get was a great guy. interview. Yeah. Yeah. So he and he's in that space. He talks about one of the things I think is we need to understand is this differential expression of mTOR and that, right. you know, we need it to put on muscle. We may not need it to, to we, we might want to have, have it not affect, you know, cancer growth. But I mean, it's, it's again, it's not like everybody we, we, we see this knee jerk reaction on everything. We find out that, oh, my gosh, insulin, high insulin levels are bad. Therefore, let's all eat nothing but butter. Uh, to, to suppress insulin and, and you know we see that you see this repeated over and yeah. over again and so now we're seeing the same thing with mTOR and I think that's just you know the, the the complexity of the human system is so far beyond what most of us can comprehend that anytime I see some new biochemical pathway come out and then and then you know the the, the theories and the, and the, the, the knee-jerk reaction then sometimes the supplements that come with that I always kind of sit back and say that's interesting. It's probably not. It, there's probably the, the, the situation is more complex than we think. Is that's the same thing with this, this fasting mimicking bar that they came out with, and they were like, "Well, we know that it's going to, you know, decrease the, the formation of IGF, you know, IGF one and 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 mTOR." And I'm like, "Well, is that the only thing that fasting can do?" I would imagine that fasting probably impacts not one or two or ten, but thousands of different pathways in our body. And to sit there and have the arrogance to think that you've studied a couple of rats and a couple of pathways, and now you've, you've made some bar that is going to mimic that to me is, it, it, you know, I just find that the height of arrogance. But.
This episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Peterson's Natural Farms. Peterson's has been bringing high-quality protein to market since 1992. All their farms are self-sustaining family farms. Their farmers grow all the food used to feed their pigs and give their pigs open pens, which allow them to roam and frolic naturally. They use no growth hormones or antibiotics. They use real seasonings and even smoke their meat with real wood chips rather than liquid smoke. If you would like to support HPO and high-quality farming, please visit petersonfarms.com. That's P-E-D-E-R-S-O-N-S-F-A-R-M-S.com and enter HPO checkout. Now, back to the show. Um, what else was I going to say? I got, I, I started ranting and <laughs> no, no, no. And it, you know, like I, I respect on the one hand, uh, Longo's research, but on the other hand, I, it, it reeks of kind of this, uh, vegan agenda wrapped into that whole thing. And, and it's fascinating that like the prolonged food line, the fasting bar and all that, it's like shitty processed food. I mean, it's, it's legitimately like crap food. It, it's really perplexing. And I, I remember uh, Roy Walford, who was the guy that was really into the, the calorie restriction and he went into the biodome and, and all that stuff. He was so nutrient deficient from that, that even though he wasn't um, genetically predisposed to the, the neurodegenerative disease that he developed, I'm blanking on what it is right now, but he, he ended up developing, it was Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, something like that. And he ended up dying at like age 72, even though we put all this effort into uh, super low calorie eating, but the diet he would eat, it was like bran muffins and stuff like that. And I was kind of geeked out on both ketogenic diets and then a higher fat version of the zone diet. And very rudimentarily, you know, like putting meat and vegetables and, and nuts into a nutrition analyzer. And you'd look at that and you're like, this is a lot more nutrient dense than a bran muffin, you know, like where, where what, what's going on with these guys, but it was a low fat bran muffin. So, you know, there you go. Yeah. One, one of the things I tried to find, you know, cause I, you know, I've been aware of this caloric restriction prolonging the life in a lot of animals over the years, but I was trying to find a good example of a carnivorous animal that restricts calories uh, and, and prolongs your life. And I couldn't find, all I could find was like dogs restricting dog kibble, which is not their natural right. diet. And so I see when you restrict dog kibble, the dogs live longer. But I, I don't know. I'm not aware of any sort of animals that are eating meat, you know, and, and, and you know, not to bias us against meat, you know, towards meat, but I, I just haven't seen the data that shows like if you restrict a dolphin's diet or you restrict. Right. Well, there, there are a few studies and they're, they're typically in omnivorous animals like rodents and whatnot, but they actually fed them a species appropriate diet which is kind of difficult to do because you don't, it, you, the, the nice thing about these kibble type diets, you know exactly the protein carb fat ratio and all that. And this is kind of where nutrition science trying to be scientific actually kind of screwed us all because no organism should eat like processed kibble. Like the, the expectation that that's going to be a, a good thing is kind of ridiculous, but in an attempt to be precise and scientific, they introduced a whole dogmatic uh, way of looking at this stuff that kind of blinded the, the bulk of researchers for nearly a century to this notion, well, what if we feed these animals a species appropriate diet? And so it, there are a few studies that have done that. And what you find is if the animal is eating a species appropriate diet and calorie restricted, they die. So it, it, like, it, it does not enhance longevity. What caloric restriction does is it may 
uh, prevent some of the deleterious effects of a super shitty diet. And that may be true in humans, that may be true in lab animals, but that's an entirely different discussion versus eating something that is more optimal, which, you know, I think we'd all agree is a very uh, an animal protein, animal product rich dietary approach. Hey Rob, let's let's transition over to talk about um, sustainable. You know how we how are we going to feed? You know this is the one thing that kind of frustrates me because I you know I, I talk about eating a bunch of meat in their plate. Well, you can't feed you know seven, nine, ten billion people that way. And I'm like, well, that's who's saying you have to do that anyway? But I mean, I do think there is something we do need to do with the food system. I mean, I think there's you know obviously there there are issues with regardless of whether it's plant food, processed food, or uh, you know, meat, milk, and dairy, I mean, you know, meat, milk, and chickens, or whatever, anyway, but um, let's talk a little, let's transition over to sustainable stuff, what what, what you and Diana, and, and probably other people in the background are, are doing uh, to, to to sort of address this question, or at least make us, make us ask those questions, because I think those questions need to be asked. Yeah, you know, it, it, in this topic, so it, it usually, there's kind of three different pieces, at least three pieces that pop up, uh, Animal products, in particular meat, are injurious to human health. Animal products are injurious to the environment, and then it's unethical to eat animals. So whenever you start having these discussions, like, you know, it'll be with like Garth Davis or, you know, any one of these folks, it always starts off on the health topic. And although not easy to unpack, we have some really good benchmarks that we can kind of hold up around that. You, you can really get them on the run if you have the proper format to be able to lay out a case and not let them change, change gears. And inevitably what they, what they do is once you've really got them painted into a corner on the human nutrition piece and they shift gears and say, well, this is going to destroy the planet and uh, it's uh, damaging to the environment, which I'm I'm that kind of crazy guy that I'm, I'm like, you know, the planet's been nearly wiped out multiple times. And uh, so we're not going to destroy or save the planet by our dietary practices. Like life's going to go on. It would be better, I think, if humans are here and if we don't totally trash the planet so that our kids have something, you know, worth, worth having. But I think that there's an arrogance there that's really remarkable that we're going to save the planet. That's ridiculous. What we're potentially saving is our own skin, if, you know, to the degree that we want to think about that. But when you really start looking into the main elements that damage the environment, like uh, 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 watershed runoff, carbon emissions, it's from row crop agriculture. And what's interesting about that is you have examples in the not too distant past of an, an interplay of animal husbandry and row crop agriculture that in ma- many places uh, were stable over the time course of thousands of years. And, and so we have a system or, or approaches to systems that have been validated to be stable and sustainable over the time course of, of eons. But yet this row crop food system, it is incredibly energy intensive. It tends to destroy the microbiome diversity within the soil. Once you destroy that, then you basically start losing topsoil. And, and I think a really credible alarm that's out there, the World Health Organization suggests that we have about 60 years, about 60 harvests left of topsoil. So the suggestion then is that we are to do away with animals wholesale in the, the, the food production system, 
which means the only thing that we have left is to double down on the row crop food system that uses the Haber-Bosch process of nitrogen fertilizer production and Roundup and, and on and on. And it, it, it's just, it, it's really a crazy time when uh, things like Beyond Burger have the highest IPO, uh, uh, you know, offering uh, since the, the 2008 financial crisis, but yet no one asked the question, and, and it's sold as a, a, a sustainability, you know, a, a up, upsell, a feature to it. Virtually no one asked the question, well, what are the inputs that you put into that thing? And it's all row crop processed, <laughs> you know, food, uh, uh, seed oils and, and protein concentrates and whatnot, which are, are reasonably energetically expensive to produce, especially when you, when you compare it to sunlight, grass, and grazing animals. And uh, some work by the Savory Institute and quite a, quite a number of people around the world suggests that if we were to expand grazing animals, and there's so many places that you could do this, um, you would actually have a really powerful net carbon sink. We would actually be capturing more of the solar energy that's landing on the planet and getting converted into plant material and shifting that into food that's fit for humans. And, and we would also create environment that is amenable to producing plant foods to the degree that we, we want to do that, but could do it in a way that is sustainable over uh, effectively kind of infinite time courses. But, you know, talking about this stuff, I've, um, when I suggested that a, uh, and this was a friend that I acknowledged in my first book, The Paleo Solution. Um, she helped me on the editing. But when I suggested to her that, um, the pro that we needed to have a nuanced discussion around climate change, because an art article had come out that suggested that um, uh, clams and oysters produce more uh, uh, greenhouse gases than cattle do, I was like, if, if you guys, if the general narrative around this is wrong, and we start discovering that there's all these natural processes that produce a ton of these greenhouse gases, we're really going to have a hell of a time unpacking this. And part of the suggestion in the article was that we should limit the amount of, of uh, uh, bivalves and shellfish on the seafloor to reduce uh, these greenhouse gas emissions. And I'm like, okay, so less life is better for more life. It just didn't make any sense. But the, the long and short of that is that this gal suggested, she said, anyone that I've seen question any element of the climate change story I've also noticed that they're likely a Holocaust denier. And so this is like the environment that we're in at this point where it, it, people are so emotionally wrapped up in this stuff. Um, you know, it, if, if a vegan row crop centric diet was the most sustainable diet, then I would say for my health, I'm going to eat a largely meat centric diet, but I acknowledge there may be some, some downsides to it, but the, the, Unfortunate reality in some ways is that I think that this stuff is both better for human health, but also better for ecological health at, at, at large. But it is, it, it goes against every single underpinning from governmental policies, like just kind of social inertia. Um, it, you know, it, it, when you suggest that animal products are good for both human health and environmental health, you're a crazy person suggesting that. And it, it requires... Mm -hmm very little effort on the part of a vegan to say meat's damaging to the environment, meat's injurious to health, it's unethical to eat animals, and it's a PhD dissertation to unpack that stuff. So it's interesting, it's, it's asymmetric warfare, 
in that the kind of vegan-centric folks can just kind of lob a hand grenade over the fence, and they don't really need to justify any of the, any of the suggestions that they make there. But then to unpack that is a remarkably challenging and nuanced process to be able to hit everything and, and kind of make a credible case. Yeah, Rob, I think um, what you said is really interesting. And it, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, like you said, they'll throw in like a massive word salad and it would take you hours to unpack it all in order to really kind of rebut any of the statements or actually dig deeper into any of the statements and, you know, places like Twitter that becomes next to impossible. So then you just end up generating more confusion than anything, I think. But, you know, one of the things Sean and I got more and more curious about is when we started this podcast was kind of the holistic farm management stuff. And, we had uh, Alan Savory on the show, which is episode 85 for any listeners wanting to go back. And uh, Joel Salatin came on episode 115, which releases on May 31st. So when this one's out, it'll already be out there. And some cool things that kind of came to my attention as we talked to those guys was just like how off some of the general stats are in terms of what is what kind of production output we can have with a management system like that. Right. And, you know, the Polyface Farm was a perfect example of that. Joel and his wife basically bought one of the most rundown, like, depleted soil areas they could. And, and at this point now, I think 30 years later, I think they've had it for 30 years, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it's, it generates five times the per acre output than your, your typical plot of Of all of his neighbors land. right outside his fences. They still mm-hmm. just look at what he's doing and they won't do what he's doing. He's like, yeah. I'll tell you what I'm doing, you know. Yeah. Right. I know. And it's, it's just wild to think like, you know, and, and I, I want to say when we had um, Frank Mitloner and Dr. Sarah Place on who are more, more along the lines of kind of the traditional agricultural model from an efficiency standpoint, you know, they'll even say that, you know, there's, there's reason to believe if you would put, put in place America or the U.S.'s kind of production methods across the globe. Now, all of a sudden we're, we're in a more manageable rate in terms of being able to feed the current and future population, you know, a diet that has meat includes animal products in it. And, you know, then if you add on top of that, you know, hopefully a movement towards some holistic management stuff as well. Like we don't even know how productive we could actually be at this point. And, and to, to, to come out and put absolutes down about, Oh, well, this is going to do this, this is going to do that at this point without actually looking into it. Uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of sad to see when you, when you kind of have the opportunity to talk to guys like Joel and, and Alan. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. So Joel's operation is so much more productive, so much more. It, it, what's interesting is it's one of the rare examples within food production that is not debt driven, which I think that this is some, like it, it gets super political really fast. But if you don't need massive in- infrastructure with farm equipment and chemicals that you just basically keep re-upping your debt and, you know, re-amortizing your debt, you're free effectively. And, and the kind of powers that be do not dig on that at all. But it, it's interesting in that regard that they're so productive. But Joel is even tinkering with some stuff of using like satellite imagery to look at his property to say, oh, this is where we need to go next. So there's even layers of efficiency that they haven't reached yet by using some really simple, uh, uh, well, it's not really simple, but some available technology that can further refine what they're doing. So it's, it's so disturbing to me, to, to your point, that the folks operate in these absolutes when they know very, very little about the topic. And the, these, these technologies expand all the time. You know, our ability to, to 
uh, improve and refine processes are pretty remarkable. So yeah, I, I see a huge opportunity to dovetail in decentralized food production, but then take advantage of this amazing centralized distribution network that, that we already have. Yeah, Rob, I think, uh, you know, just speaking about technology, I mean, you know, one of the biggest knocks about, against animal agriculture when it comes to environmental impact, particularly greenhouse gases, is methane production. We do know that there are probably ways we can mitigate that. I know there's been some research looking at algal supplements for, for cows in like Australia where you can knock out 90% or 99% of their methane output by changing the gut microbiome, which may or may not be something we need to do. As we talked about, you know, maybe the methane, we know that it's time in the atmosphere, the resonance is very short relative to carbon dioxide. There are many, many sources of methane throughout the world, the wetlands, the ocean, the termites, the clams, hydroelectric power plants, natural gas. So whether that's something we need to tackle or not is, is debatable, but we can tackle that with technology. And I think uh, we've got, hopefully we get Bobby Gill coming on from the mm-hmm. Savory Institute to talk about some of these technologies. Because when I was there at PaleoFX, I was talking to him and I was meeting all these people talking about this really cool technology uh, that we have going on. Um, you know, that we can do that. Now, I want to, you know, because this is a, this is a, the thing you talk about at the beginning, you know, the vegans throw a grenade and, 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 you know, basically there's there's nothing we can do. And so it becomes to a point where we have to figure out as people that support, you know, our, our hopefully our continued capacity to eat, you know, what I would argue a human appropriate diet and not a processed food supplement diet. We need some kind of tools or weapons in our arsenal. And I think, you know, films like this can move the needle. And, and, and I think, you know, whether getting out on social media and doing, doing all these things, we have to get to a point where we have to sort of wake up and do some of this stuff. So talk a little bit about the film in particular, uh, what, what's, what's, what, what, what the purpose of the film is and how people can get out there and, and help make this happen and other things happen. Yeah, so the name of both the book and the film is Sacred Cow, and it's really Diana's gig. Like, I've been helping her as much as I can. I'm uh, co-authoring the the book, and maybe it's a little bit of context here. Uh, I was at an event with Joel Salatin, and there were some some vegan folks in the crowd, and they said, what are you going to do to feed us? If the world adopts this this process, what are you going to do to feed us? And Joel said, if you let me feed my family the way I want to, I guarantee you I will produce enough food for you to feed your family the way you want to. And this is something that um, I, I guess kind of libertarian or, or live and let live type, type you know, sentiment that I kind of see uh, endemic on the more meat eating side of the story and it seems to be wholly absent on the kind of vegetarian vegan side of the story. They, they really are so set uh, morally, epistemologically, that, that their way of doing things is right. They, they're enacting legislation to change uh, school lunch programs so that they're, they're meatless. And in many cities, uh, kids that are in poor families, the only meals that they oftentimes get are at school. And the little bit of animal products that they get currently are slated to be removed. And so what's been a big challenge within this paleo, ancestral health, CrossFit, keto scene is everybody gets very siloed. They're in their camp and you've got high protein keto versus low protein keto. And then, of course, 
you know, the paleo diet's completely different than the ketogenic diet, of course, you know, I mean, there's no, you know, it's, it, and I'm a lumper and it appears the rest of the world are splitters, like everybody has all these, these different lines. But while we're bickering and doing these pissing matches back and forth, the, the vegan scene has what is effectively a, a very sexy, concise message that ticks all the boxes of a religion and it's getting buy-in at the highest levels of political organizations, both at a, a national and international level. And uh, the, the idea behind this, this uh, book and movie is just to have one, a, a, a one-stop shop, not that it's going to, you know, the science always progresses, we always learn more, but addressing the human health, the sustainability or environmental impact, and the ethical considerations around animals in a food system, because these are the things that always come up. And again, it's always kind of a whack-a-mole when you're trying to, to you know, have a, a debate with one of these folks where they'll shift gears. And so we really um, tie all this stuff together. And what's fascinating to me is that when you consider, say, like the ethical consideration, so we should kill the least number of beings possible to live our lives and all that stuff. What's fascinating about that is that the row crop centric model isn't the winner. What wins is large grazing animals, fruits, vegetables, roots, and tubers. Those are the things that, that win that. And that sounds remarkably similar to a paleo diet. And then when you look at something that could be sustainable over nearly infinite time courses, because of the nutrient cycling and the inputs, it's large grazing animals, fruits, vegetables, roots, shoots, tubers. So. It's really interesting, that, and it's been a challenge in writing the book because we have to tackle each one of these topics separately, but then you can't really get the full appreciation of it without understanding that all of these things push back in. Going back to one of the first questions that, that you had early on, that protein leverage hypothesis, if we don't feed people species-appropriate diets, they're going to overeat and they're therefore going to be sick. And one of the things that's really interesting, if you just, if folks do a, a simple search, a congressional budget office, CBO, diabetes costs, and you look at the charts that they have on that, by 2035, the U.S. is bankrupt from diabetes costs. I mean, like, like done just, just from that. And that's before the tsunami of neurodegenerative disease kicks in. And diabetes is cheap and easy to treat compared to neurodegenerative disease because Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and some of these dementias, uh, you need 24-7 nursing care. And how the fuck are we going to deal with that? You know, I mean, and so, so when you start getting into this, if you don't address the human health part of this appropriately, then we face economic catastrophe. So you have to feed people appropriately so then if you're feeding people appropriately, you need to do it in a systematic fashion so that we don't degrade the environment in such a way that we can't continue to do that. So then it gives a hat tip towards this holistic management and a massive reliance on grazing animals. And, and a, a good good friend of mine and a guy you guys should definitely get on the show, Russ Conser, he was a systems engineer at Shell Oil for 30 years, and he oversaw kind of their uh, alternative energy, you know, kind of kind – of, uh, uh, story very excited about both nuclear and um, uh, solar energy, but he has some back of the envelope numbers that we should be eating like seven to 10 times more grazing animals, not fewer. And again, this is, is stuff that um, 
it, if we're wrong, if we're wrong about this stuff, then let's hash this out and have a scientific discussion around it and really kick the tires on this stuff. Let's not do what we did with the, the McGovern Commission and say, well, this is too important of a thing. We need to act now. And then we act in a way that is actually diametrically opposed to, you know, good outcomes. So it, it's been a monumental undertaking. We've been working on this about three years. And dude, Diana has suffered so hard producing this movie and book and, I, and like death threats from vegans, all, all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's been really crazy. And honestly, not a ton of support out of the the paleo low carb scene like people get really geeked out on abs and and you know improving their uh, physical performance but this sustainability thing because it, it hasn't been baked in the cake the way that it has with veganism um it's been very hard to get people excited about this stuff but there's kind of a reality that if you want to eat the way that you want to eat if you're excited about the potential of autoimmune paleo and carnivore for autoimmune diseases then we need to have access to these, these products. And we're facing a scenario in which it will be taxed, it will be legislated out of existence. Like the, the Eat Lancet um, uh, piece that, that came out recently, it was suggesting a complete rejiggering of the food system such that animal husbandry was effectively done away with. And, and, and like, once that's gone, it can be replaced, but you're talking about another, you know, 20 years of revamping that whole process once we figure out that that was a terrible idea. So this is kind of the time that, that we, in this, I guess, bigger ancestral health scene, we really need to link arms and put the tiny picayunish differences that we have aside and, and really support this idea of holistic management and, and a... Uh, a meat centric diet being healthy for humans, healthy for the environment, and also an ethical way to, to uh, navigate our civilization. Yeah, Rob, you brought up an interesting point when you asked, or when you mentioned like kind of the difference between the vegan community and the keto community in that like the vegan community has that ethical component tied to it, which I find really interesting. I mean, I think I, I feel bad for the ones that do a shallow dive and find themselves eating tons of monocrops and, think they're doing that for ethics and doing that for the environment and in turn are kind of saying what you were talking about with the McGovern report a, a similar situation. But one thing I also see is that when we have these former vegans kind of switch over, or have health problems and decide I'm going to go back to omnivory or sometimes even a carnivore approach is when they do it, it seems like they hit the ground running in the most sustainable way possible. They're like hyper-focused on grass-fed, grass-finished, they're like learning how to hunt. They're, you know, raising chickens themselves and having the eggs and things like that. And you don't really see that as like the first entry point for the keto carnivore community as much. And I can't help but think that that's just kind of that direction that they're coming from. You know, you if you're an ethical vegan for 10 years or your whole life and then you decide to switch to an omnivorous approach, you know, you didn't just like shove that ethics to the side overnight that didn't just disappear. So you're still trying to think of that. So it would be, in, and I see that in a, in a couple of different lenses, but one I find is like, this is some common ground. And right. if we can get like a good, like a vocal enough portion of the vegan community to understand that, hey, we're not going to get this mass amount of people to come over to follow a strict vegan diet. But if we can get them to start focusing more on buying local meats, buying local products, 
learning how to hunt and kind of bringing back some of this holistic farming and some of these more traditional approaches to food and just getting closer to their food, that's a huge win. And, and they can stay vegan if they want. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think that kind of a similar, you know, common enemy would be a, an awesome thing to see happen in the coming years. Yeah, I'm, I'm not optimistic. Of the, like, uh, <laughs> once folks are on that side of the, the fence, like it, it's, um, it's very difficult to, to, to get them back and to even have a discussion around this stuff. And on, it, it was interesting. I was having a, a discussion with one of these folks. I forget who it was. And I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Let's create a hypothetical here. I could wave a magic wand or I develop some technology where I could open a gateway into an alternate universe where there's an identical earth, but there's no humans on it. And what if I said, everybody that wants to eat animals is going to leave this earth and we leave it to you and you literally get planet of the vegans. They're kind of like, okay. I said, would you leave us alone? Or would you feel compelled to come and change what we're doing? And you you could just like, you could see where he's like, I I trapped him. I'm pretty good at (laughs) people into, into, traps like that but it's so many of these people are so emotionally morally set he's like well i mean it, it would make sense you guys could do your own thing but i was like it's really hard for you like you would feel compelled to basically like invade this alternate world and then change the way that these other people are living even though you've got your own and you could see like the smoke coming out of his ears on on this thing so it's um it it, it again like the the vegan approach ticks every box to fit a religious dogma um, for good or ill, even though people can be religiously dogmatic about any element of the ancestral health scene, because it doesn't have that kind of moral superiority just baked in the cake and that, that kind of moral imperative that you need to convert people to your way of being. Um, it's much less sticky. It's much less cohesive. It, it doesn't com- uh, generate that kind of community mindset quite the way that the, the vegan thing does. And so we, we really have our work cut out for us, um, getting people who otherwise w- would love to just war over these minor differences and recognizing that there's kind of a common enemy here. And, and the last 10 years, I've really been of the mind of trying to um, find common ground within the vegan community where and when I could. And I've completely abandoned that now. And I'm just trying to focus on those people who, who get this bigger picture. And we just need to kind of rally those folks. And, to, and, and I'm trying not to be such a huge dick that if there is somebody in the vegan side that um, they're kind of waffling, that I don't totally alienate them. But I, I've also kind of abandoned that as kind of a, a hope and an orientation, really just kind of um, uh, uh, catering to people's self-interest that if you want to continue to feed yourself and your family the way that you want to, if this idea of kind of holistic management, decentralized food production makes sense to you, then we need to get in and actually support and defend it. Yeah, Rob, I think, you know, it's a lost cause sort of try to convert vegans to not be vegans. I think they'll sort themselves out. You know, many of them will experience health issues and then they'll, they'll, they'll wake up and they'll really realize it. Some of them hang on for probably longer than they should. But I think, you know, when we talk about the common enemy, I don't see it as vegans as a common enemy. I think they're, you know, I like to call them useful idiots for these big giant, you know, yes. processed food companies. You know, we've got yeah. even some of the meat processing companies like Tyson and Cargill are investing in, you know, alternate forms of protein, fake meats and stuff like that. And so those guys are, you know, they're, they're in it for the profit at the end of the day. 
And I mean, you know, we need to support the, the producers directly, the ranchers and farmers and, and really get behind those guys and do what we can both uh, just financially, but legislatively, if, if we can come together as a community, become politically active, drive some of that policy that supports these guys, hopefully we can do that. You know, I'm setting up this animal-based nutrition network.com mm-hmm. where that's one of the goals within that is, is just kind of help further develop this community so we can have a cohesive message, whether you're carnivore, keto, whatever, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. We are all on the same page here, but talk to me a little bit, because a lot of people will say, well, you know, that's good and fine and good and all, but we've got lab grown meat that's coming. You know, we got this lab grown meat and that's going to save the world. Talk to us about if you're familiar about any of the shortcomings. I know I've got, I know a lot of how that, the science that goes into how that is and what's actually going on with that stuff. But do you have any concerns about lab grown meat being the, being the way of the future? Yeah. I mean, man, it's, funny um so having been a biochemist and doing some molecular biology i've grown a lot of stuff in petri dishes to and this is one of these things that one of our big problems that we face is people are so divorced from the the real world and uh nature in particular that they don't think about the energetic inputs and outputs of of different systems like when uh, you know there's all this hoopla around growing corn to make ethanol to reduce uh, uh, gas consumption. The, the unfortunate reality there, though, is that it costs more energy to produce that ethanol from corn than what you get out of it, which is why these ethanol farmers don't drive their tractors on ethanol. <laughs> they still use petroleum products. And so when you suggest that lab-grown meat is going to be sustainable, you have to start unpacking this on a, a lot of different layers. Okay, so what is the infrastructure of the facility that you're going to use? You have some sort of a brick and mortar establishment, and maybe this is something that's already built, or, or it, it, and so you can repurpose it, but you have the energy sunk costs. And by energy, we can usually say fossil fuels and carbon dioxide and all that stuff. Either have that as a sunk cost or you need to rebuild something. Then you have these vats and you have temperature control and you have lighting. Then you have to fill these vats that you're going to inoculate with meat cells to grow with growth medium. That growth medium comes from row crops. And the ironic thing is that one of the, uh, one, when um, some of these folks uh, that are uh, uh, pushing the lab grown meat, this is just hilarious. But the folks that are pushing the lab-grown meat, when it was pointed out very specifically, this, the, all of this stuff is called a life cycle analysis. When you look at the total thermodynamic inputs and outputs and, and kind of what, where we finish with that, when it was pointed out that we would be relying on an unsustainable row crop system to produce the inputs to put into lab-grown meat, these guys went and did a little bit of tinkering and they said, well, we can raise animals on that area and rotate them, and then we'll be able to maintain the row crops. So even if you want to grow lab-grown meat, you have to have holistically managed animals to not destroy the land it's grown on to be able to do the meat. And that still ignores the thermodynamic inefficiencies that, that versus sunlight, grass, and animals. So it, you know, if we had a scenario where we shifted 100% to like, fusion power and we had unlimited electricity and for some reason we we wanted to um you know for ethical or or whatever considerations do that we could but you would still need to use holistically managed animals to make the soil 
healthy enough to be able to support that system. And, and you still have all these kind of crazy ethical considerations there. So a lot of the, there are these vegan farms that will adopt old farm animals and they are, they'll get dozens, even hundreds of them. And the idea is that you're going to let them live out their life. But as the, these animals get really old, they're suffering enormously. And so then these, these uh, vegan, you know, uh, rescue farms are facing these kind of end of life scenarios that we usually face with like our parents and grandparents and stuff like that. Like, so uh, some of these, these places will um, euthanize the animals and then they get criticized for that. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's just crazy. But even if you were to use animal input to support the lab-grown meat scenario, you still have all these ethical considerations around, well, what are you going to do with the animals that are, that are raised on, on those lands to, to produce the soil and do the nutrient cycling and, and all that stuff? And so it, it's still, it, it's so controversial and it's hard to kind of unpack the whole story in, in many ways, but it's still the, the most efficient direct route to least harm, healthy humans, healthy environment is a, 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 a not a row crop centric approach. It's, it's using this uh, large herbivore as kind of the backbone of the, the whole energy system. Yeah. I mean, if we, even, even beyond, you know, just the energetics, you know, we talk about, you know, from an ethical standpoint, at least the technology right now requires, you know, you know, fetal bovine serum to, 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 to as a nutrient media. And so right. how do how do you get that stuff? Well, you got to kill a pregnant cow and suck the blood out of the fetus while it's still alive without anesthesia. And you got to do that over and over and over and over again to supply these cells. So they have nutri- a nutrient bath to, to, to bathe it. So you're still killing lots of animals. You know, there's some thought that maybe they'll be able to come up with some nutrient lab grown nutrient that they don't have to do that but that that's never been proven to happen i mean this right. doesn't happen and so it, we it may be a hundred years before they can figure that out and so the thought that we're going to be you know and i think there's some companies memphis meats and some of the others i think they're going to have lab grown meat on the shelf by next year which to me is is frightening i mean i know i think the usda is going to regulate that stuff and i think they're not going to allow them to call that meat if i'm not mistaken i don't mm-hmm. know where we're at with that but i mean it's to me it's not a solution now that the vegans might talk about um, like hydroponic, you know, uh, uh, growing of, 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 of fruits and vegetables. Do you have any sort oh, yeah. of put on that sort of stuff? Yeah, so we cover this one really in depth. And when you, again, when you look at the, the things that grow well hydroponically, it's basically crunchy water. Like lettuce grows well hydroponically. Wheat, uh, soy, you know, the staples of kind of the, the backbone of the vegan type diet, they do not grow hydroponically. And I, I, I for, will forget some of the numbers here, but I took the total caloric harvest of one year of U.S. wheat. And then I looked at how much energy using the best efficiency in hydroponics, and you can't really grow wheat hydroponically. So we're waving a magic wand right there. But you would use somewhere between seven and 20 times the U.S. electrical budget to produce one harvest of wheat. So it's horribly inefficient. And here's an an interesting thing that that kind of uh, highlights this. Historically, people have grown marijuana hydroponically because you can hide it that way and whatnot. As states have uh, decriminalized and legalized marijuana, they're growing it outside because it's much cheaper and much more efficient because you use sunlight to do it. 
So hydroponics is, is great, like if you live in Iceland and you want to have some salad in the winter and stuff like that, but it is not uh, going to remotely be the backbone of a food system. And this is some of the stuff that when people suggest that you, they will say, you can't feed the world with animals, but yet you can feed it with hydroponics. Like it is jaw-droppingly ignorant. It, it, it's just shocking. And it's some very basic back of the envelope arithmetic to just look at this stuff. Let's look at the wheat, soy, and corn harvest, how many calories you produce, what is the, the caloric conversion of most plant materials, what, what's the average efficiency of, of uh, uh, grow lights, and, and then you just uh, uh, do a little bit of math on that. And what you find is that it's fractionally efficient, you know? And, and so it's, um, yeah, it's funny. It's real sexy. Lab-grown meat is sexy. Hydroponics are sexy. That stuff is all kind of cool, but the, the numbers just don't add up on it at all. What, what's ironic is something that looks a lot like a, a late 18th century farm that then has like some really high level technology like electric fences and satellite imaging to figure out what the the state of the the greenery is on the the pasture is probably something that's going to be remarkably efficient and also sustainable over the long haul but there's nothing sexy about that you know there's there's no whiz bang new technology there's no patentable uh, 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 processes or, or organisms around that. What it does involve is a lot of people doing that work who are largely free and, and debt, you know, debt free and uh, building local community and, and stuff like that. And it, which is very different than the, um, the centralized row crop model that we did in, you know, over the last 60, close to a hundred years. Yeah, I think, you know, listen to this stuff and then listen to guys like Joel Sal. And I think Zach and I, you know, in about 20 years, we're going to open a ranch and we're doing this stuff because it sounds, sounds. I'm looking at land in New Mexico. Yeah, exactly. Well, but, we, you know, we did uh, two and a half acres here in Reno and we did sheep and goats. And then the place that we're looking at in, wherever we go in Texas will probably be like two to six acres. Like I, I already had my hands full, but that's an, enough. The two and a half acres we were fully able to supply all the needs of our family plus other people doing that as far as like protein. And, and then we would cycle in the fruits and vegetables and all that type of stuff. And this is in a high desert environment that in theory, isn't that amenable to this type of stuff. But when we first moved here, the, the field had been overgrazed from horses and it, it was just destroyed. There were huge erosion, you know, features to it and everything. And now it's like a solid mountain of grass out there. And I'm an idiot with holistic management. Like I really don't know what I'm doing, but even a little bit of input I got from Bobby Gill and some other folks and using a uh, portable electric fencing, we were able to completely rehab that, it, that landscape. And it, it, it's worth mentioning like this area from Reno down to Las Vegas, um, uh, up until about the, the late 1800s, this was a massive grassland. And it, it was overgrazed, it was mismanaged, but this area, what, it, it, it's still desert, it's still arid, but it used to be one of the largest grasslands in the United States, but it was, it was mismanaged and largely destroyed. But there are people around here employing holistic management practices and rehabilitating the, the land around here. Yeah, Rob, talk to us a little bit about, because, you know, the environmental, I mean, the greenhouse gas argument, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, if we're, if we're going to, if we're going to say man is causing climate change and, and realizing that many people discount that argument and they, you know, and, and, you know, but 
stepping outside that and, and we'll say it's methane, but a lot of people will point to, okay, maybe, maybe cows aren't in, r- r- ruining the environment that way, but water usage, uh, pesticide runoff, uh, ocean dead zones. How do we address those issues and still have an animal centric uh, food supply? Yeah. So like the water usage piece and Diana would, would be, she's way more cracker jack on this, but when numbers are floated about um, the water usage for, for raising cattle, what's lumped into that, about 90% of, of the water used is rainfall. It's going to fall w- one way or the other, but it's portrayed as if this is water that is being taken away from humans or other animals or what have you. But this is just the rain that falls naturally, rain, snow, uh, other precipitation that falls naturally on a given uh, grassland or, or what have you. So that's one of these huge mis- misnomers in this whole story where, where people will throw out those numbers and there's no context behind it. Um, on the, the kind of like nitrogenous effluent destroying um, waterways, it's a legit problem. And the reason why this didn't happen in the past is that we had more decentralization of animal production and the, the uh, uh, feces and urine and all that stuff got recycled in the, the production of crops. So it really makes a ton of sense to recycle the animal waste. This is a whole other controversial thing, but human waste should be better recycled and, and repurposed into, uh, uh, you know, use in, in uh, instead of doing synthetically uh, formulated fertilizers, we should use more of, of kind of the, the human waste component instead of just dumping that into waterways. Uh, creating a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico the size of Texas is not a good idea. Like there, there's no benefit, there's no upside to that, but that is all a byproduct of uh, kind of the, the uh, heavily centralized animal production methods plus a ton of that nitrogen is the, the byproduct of the nitrogen fertilizer, the synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. So most of those things end up getting addressed if we look at more of a, a biodynamic decentralized system versus the, the consolidation that we have right now. Yeah, Rob, I, I just, you know, again, and, and I think the, the biggest sort of sort of concern with that, you know, becomes from e- even people within the animal agriculture sector saying, what is the scalability of that? What is what, you know, what are the numbers going to look like? How many people can we feed? I, I don't know if those calculations have been done. I mean, let, you know, let's, you know, you can say best case scenario, worst case scenario, let's say everybody does the Joel Salatin and we've got, you know, now we've got a, we've got a patch of land that's now it's 600% more productive due to the, 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 the efficiency and the, the grass is grown rather than a, than a, than a, you know, burned out, you know, overgrazed field. What, I mean, how many, I mean, do we know the numbers yet on what we could do, you know, as far as feeding people? Again, Diana went, went deeper on that stuff, but we did looked at some numbers. So what, what's the uh, current, Global population, I want to say, is 7.5 billion, and like a low-end estimation is it's going to be like it, it by 2100, it's going to be like 9.5 billion. Um, there were some estimates that were saying it was going to be 18 billion. Nobody buys that anymore. More and more, uh, an interesting thing happens as people get wealthier, as people get healthier, they tend to have fewer children. So it's a pretty good case that the birth rate is going to decrease. Although then people will say that westernized societies consume more energy and, and uh, 
resources and there's truth to that up to a degree, but that's a whole other thing to unpack. But, but one piece of this right now is that about 50% of the food that's produced doesn't really get utilized to, to feed humans. Um, a lot of it goes to waste. Uh, some of it does go into feeding animals. Um, you, you could make a really strong case, and we, we do in the book, that if we just had better systems of reclaiming expired or uneaten food and then sanitize it and use that to feed chickens and pigs. Currently, uh, chickens and pigs are exclusively fed on kind of the first pass of, of grain products. So you can make an argument that to the degree things like that that are, are made, any leftovers should be utilized in feeding animals, not utilizing it as a, a first pass. So you get a remarkable uh, improvement in efficiencies right there. Now, it may make things a little bit more expensive in some ways because there are, are some, some uh, uh, you know, it's a fairly process in, intensive uh, kind of endeavor to do all that. But at the same time, when you start adding up the externalities, and this is something that economics hasn't really been that good at, when you consider the dead zone that is created off the Gulf of Mexico and the, the total cost associated with that, and then lump that into the costs of doing business as we're currently doing it, things are not remotely as efficient as what they look like. Like we've been looking at things in a very, as if that one entity, the, the, you know, the middle of the United States, row crops, chemical fertilizer, synthetic chemical fertilizer. We're looking at that as if it's a closed system, but it's not, it really is part of a global system. And so when you add up the, the total external costs, this is where people kind of lose their minds over um, nuclear energy versus versus coal. More people have died, vastly more people have died from radiation-induced illnesses as a byproduct of coal than they have from nuclear energy. And it's it, it's far more dangerous in that regard, but it's a very difficult story to, to sell to people and to unpack all those, those details. But it, it, I wouldn't say that it's going to be easy to feed a global population, but, it, you know, using these holistic methods but it's also the flip side of that is that it's crystal clear that we have an expiration date on how we can feed people with a row crop centric model. It, that is going to destroy the topsoil. And once the topsoil is destroyed, like we really are in a pickle in that regard. And the one thing that seems to replenish the topsoil is reestablishing that, that ecological, you know, back and forth between grazing animals and, and that, that uh, kind of grassland environment. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're back breeding the oryx in Romania. And so that, you know, by 2025, we're supposed to have some oryx back. So maybe we can right, get those, right. get those big guys out there. It. I wonder what an oryx, <laughs> I, I, I don't imagine they'll let us eat them for any period of time. But, you know, it would be, it would be interesting. Well, I'm sure, as you know, that, that, that the, uh, the, the Earth's environment was much, much different, you know, 100,000 years ago. You know, Pleistocene stuff when we had all these huge, huge megafaunal herbivores everywhere. And, and the world didn't collapse at that that stage so i think we can support a hell of a lot more than uh than we we think we can yeah and i mean like uh cindy daly um at, at, who's done work she's at uh csu chico and then she does work with folks in australia it, the the science is pretty clear that if you want to capture uh, huge amounts of carbon this is another one of these funny things that there there are these outfits that burn enormous amounts of energy trying to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and liquefy it and stick it underground and all that type of stuff. 
it's incredibly energy inefficient. If we were on fusion based energy and electricity was effectively free, you could maybe make an argument that, that these things could perhaps be viable, but everywhere that some grass could grow or some green vegetation could grow and you could have an, a, a vegetation animal life cycle occurring, you have the potential for sequestering massive amounts of carbon. And uh, this is a, some of the back of the envelope numbers, and this is where Russ Conser would be a great guy for you guys to, to get on. He suggests that we could potentially return uh, carbon dioxide levels to pre-industrial numbers by properly using uh, uh, grazing animals. Now, this is the, the cool thing about focusing on this grazing animal-centric model. If folks don't believe in anthropogenic uh, climate change, cool, that's fine, doesn't matter. This is still a more efficient and, and sustainable long-term system. If you are hair on fire worried about the future of the world due to uh, you know, uh, human-induced climate change, then this is a really important solution to at least kick the tires on and consider instead of just dismissing out of hand because it doesn't fit in with the, the kind of mega corporation vegan vegan agenda yeah the question yeah i guess the question is who's going to step up you know we got it we've got to you know we've got to get somebody in there that you know they've got some politicians now that are you know you know it was at aoc in, in new york and cory booker senator booker you know these guys that are vegan and i just i think we have to have these people in there that are going to be able to step up and you know, because I mean, this data is out there, Rob. I mean, these, this, this, this is available to people, but people are choosing the the corporate processed food route for whatever reason. I, I think the reason is clearly just pure profit, in my view. But I think uh, uh, hopefully we've got people that are gonna that are gonna you know listen to this message and get this word out and help us share it, and uh, hopefully we can influence you know enough people. So yeah, support the sure. support their film. I know you guys, I know Diana had, I know Mark Sisson stepped up and some other people, some big donors have stepped up. Um, can you talk about what people can do to support uh, you guys specifically? Yeah, for sure. If you go to sacred cow, sacredcow.org, um, that's the website. If you want to throw down a, a, a nominal donation to help with the film and I'll never make a dollar off the film. I'm not attached to that, but uh uh, that would be incredible. And just as time comes closer, when the book and the film are, are ready to be released, um, the, you know, distributing that, talking about it, reading it, critiquing it. Like, what, what do folks not understand? What, what case did we not make succinctly enough? Like, uh, it's a massive education process. And, and I really don't want people to go in, let, let's say somebody's like, oh, I like Rob, I'll just believe what he says. No kick the tires on it, um, pressure test it. I, I, I dislike being wrong more than just about anything. It, you know, like it, you were talking about how much you love to compete and uh, I, I like competing too, but as an internal competition, I hate being wrong, but that doesn't mean that I steadfastly argue and, and die on every hill. I surround myself with people smarter than myself and I learn and then I modify my worldview and I, I go forward. So if, if I or we get something wrong on this, we want to know about it so we can, we can update our, our worldview. I, I see having a shittily informed worldview like being blindfolded and giant muffs on your hands and you're supposed to perform surgery or, or do martial arts with it or something. Like you're, you're operating with super... Uh, uh, incomplete knowledge. And that isn't going to be good for anybody. I, I have two young 
daughters and I want them to live in a better world than what I lived in. And so I'm, I'm motivated to, to get this story right. So I just uh, would really encourage people to give us some support, but also be critical of the material, like ask questions and, and understand it. Don't just accept it because you're bought into this way of life and you might like, you, you know, you guys or Diana and I like be critical consumers of this stuff. And then if it makes sense, help to get the message out. Perfect, Rob. I think that's great. Rob, I think we could talk for another two hours easily. Um, I'm hungry. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> so let's, let's do a part two, you know, you know, when the book comes out or something, I don't know if we, if we get, you know, I don't know how long far out you are, but maybe at least pick down the road and, and kind of continue. Cause I, I think, you know, you know, I, you know, how many people hear this, you know, tens of thousands of people hear this episode, but we, you, you just got to keep beating the same drum over and over again. I mean, it, it literally is a 24 hour seven day a week, 365 day a year campaign. We just can't let up. We, we've just got to all continually beat the drum and, and, and change as many people's opinions as possible. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's, that's what we have to do. It's, it's literally a propaganda war. And, you know, I mean, we've got to step up and play offense and stop playing defense and have an option. You know, like I said, yeah. you know, people, when, when people come to you and they, they have a problem, you said, well, what's your solution? You know, and, and we're, we're, we're offering a solution. This is a, a likely viable solution. And, you know, let's, let's keep beating the message out there. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for the work you're doing. Uh, uh, Human Performance Outliers remains my favorite podcast currently. So it's a huge honor to bring down property values on this thing. Thank you guys. Oh, I don't <laughs> think you brought down the property value by Rob. <laughs> Zach, any last minute uh, things? I got two ribeyes I'm going to eat, so. You no, know, just uh, thanks, Rob, for coming on. It's been awesome. I've been a huge fan since I uh, first read your book years and years ago. So to think that we had a podcast that is uh, worthy of your presence is, is an honor, and we're happy to have you on anytime you want to come. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Take care. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.